Today we're starting off hopefully on the right foot. It's 2010. Hard to believe, but it is. It's arrived, and uh, we've been started a series last week starting off on the right foot, New Beginnings, and this is part two to that message. And um, I started off last week asking who knew what a mulligan was, and some of you raised your hands, and a mulligan is, in golf, it's called a do-over. You just get to take your shot over when you make a mistake, and, um, or a bad shot. And sometimes in life, it's good to know that through Christ, we can have a do-over. We can start over fresh. We can start with a brand new slate, not only once a year, but every day. That's made possible to us. I mean, there's no question that we need just that, a do-over. Um, there are times when we need a second chance, a new start. Uh, when it comes around this time of the year, people make all these resolutions, and boy, they're going to start the year strong. And uh, sometimes it only lasts a couple days or maybe a couple weeks. But in Christ, we have a chance to start fresh every morning. Today we're going to continue to look at the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, and we're looking at new beginnings. And here is a man who penned a majority of the New Testament, but he wasn't always a spiritual man. He wasn't always a godly man. He was a religious man. And he even killed, in the name of his religion, Christians. And we have a testimony here in the book of Philippians of God's wonderful grace to who once was known Saul, now named Paul the Apostle. And we looked last week, just way of review, those of you who weren't here, you can get the, the message, but Paul's past glory. We looked at what he once had in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, or, or verse 4, excuse me. He says in 3, 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And he unveiled for us what was his past glory. And then he also, we looked at what he once lifted up or hailed. He looked at his status as a pure Jew. Because the Bible says there in Philippians 3 that he was not only a Jew by religion, circumcised the eighth day, but he was also a Jew by race because he was out of the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. It even said a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he made a national, a tribal, and a parental claim to his Judaism. And we also saw his stature as a practicing Jew in verses 5 to 6. He was a fundamentalist Jew. He says, as touching the law, he was a Pharisee. Above all else, above all others. Paul had also been a fanatical Jew, because we see there that it says, concerning zeal, what did he do? He persecuted the church. In the name of his religion, he was persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking that he was doing the right thing. And he had also been a fastidious Jew, because when it said came, when it came to the law, Touching the righteousness which is of the law, he said that he, found, he was found blameless. And we talked about how that didn't mean sinless, but it meant blameless. No one was able to blame, point their finger at Paul and say, hey, you're a hypocrite in this area of the law. That wasn't true with Saul who became Paul. 
He once thought himself as chief of the saints. But when he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he realized that he was not chief of the saints at all, but he was the chief of sinners. God, through God, he realized that he was the chief of sinners. See, that's what happens when someone encounters the Lord Jesus Christ with their life. It just shows them their own sinfulness, their own inability to save themselves. And we also looked at Paul's present gains, what he discounted. He wrote off all his human religion. In verse 7 it says, What things were gained to me, those things I counted loss for Christ. He gladly put aside his human religion for Christ. A lot of us have been saved out of a church. Maybe we grew up in or whatever and we never heard the gospel. It was all just about religion. See, the difference between Christianity and religion is, is religion is, is trying to do works to reach a holy God. That's what religion is. That's what all man-made religions are. They have an agenda. They have do's and don'ts. They have all these things that hopefully if you live by their religion, somehow you're going to improve your standing before a holy God. And that's just not true. Whereas Christianity, it's not about your religion. It's about your what? It's about your relationship. It's about who you are in Christ. The difference between religion and Christianity is a simple matter of words. You can represent any world religion by a simple two-letter word, do, D-O. It's what you do that matters in any religion of the world. People are religious. It's all about what they do, how they perform. But when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Christ, it's not a matter of what you do. It's a matter of what was done, D-O-N-E, for you on Calvary. Big difference. Well, he wrote off all his human religion. He also wrote off all his human resources in verse 8. He said, I count all things but loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but rubbish that I may win Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Popper, Paul had the proper perspective when it came to living. And he was glad that he got a do-over with all the stuff in his past, all the stuff in his present. He put all that aside for the simple fact of knowing Christ. We also looked at what he desired. He desired salvational truth. And we talked about two kinds of truth. We mentioned two kinds of truth. Salvational truth and sanctifying truth. We're going to get into sanctifying truth today. But last week we looked at salvational truth. And that's what he discovered there in verse 9, we discovered, it says, and be found in him. See, that's salvational truth. That's a position that we can enjoy as Christians, beloved. As we start this new year afresh, I pray that you are in him, that you are found in him. Because salvation is mainly and largely a matter of one's position. The unsaved man is without Christ. He's without God. He's without hope. The saved man is found in him. And I I pray that this morning you find yourself in Christ, that you are in him. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, that at that time you were without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That describes the unbeliever. That describes someone who is outside of Christ, that is outside of that position. It's not only a position to enjoy, but it's also a possession. Because he says in verse 9 that he didn't have his own righteousness, which is of the law. He discarded all his own righteousness. See, Paul was a man who once worked very hard to impress God with his behavior. He worked very hard to set himself aside and be found blameless. And he took very much pride in his achievements that were made up by the the legalistic rules of his religion. And the one thing that happened to Paul is when he met Christ, he understood the significance of the nail prints in Christ's hands. He understood the meaning of the cross. He realized that there was a better way to achieve a perfect standing before God than just trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do your religion every day. He understood that. And so he took all his false righteousness that he found in his religion and it says that he cast it aside. And it goes on in verse 9, it says, But that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. See, he discovered a flawless righteousness in Christ. That's what you need if you're going to be saved. You need a righteousness that's going to stand up when times gets tough. You're you're, you're going to need a righteousness that's going to stand up against the accusations of the devil. You're going to need a righteousness that is definitely divine in nature. See, the secret to a flawless righteousness is not trying to do more stuff. The secret to a flawless righteousness is found in Christ. That's where we find our righteousness. Because you have to understand, we just celebrated Christmas. And you have to understand, from the moment he drew, the Lord Jesus drew his first breath as a baby. From that moment all the way until his last breath when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Thirty-some years he lived on this earth. And he did always those things that pleased the Father. Always. I mean, he never sinned, he never sinned. He was perfect. He did everything perfectly. He fully fulfilled God's purpose for him. When Paul realized that, he had to look to Christ to find a flawless righteousness because he realized that his righteousness was flawed. Today, we want to look at, continue in our study here in Philippians 3, and we want to look at sanctifying truth. Sanctifying truth. In verses 10 through the end there of uh, verse 14, I want to read that for us. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse I'll start in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellent of knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. 
the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. First thing we see here in our text for this, this morning concerning sanctifying truth is Paul's, the personal gain that he has. He says that I may know him, that I may know him. It's very important to understand that salvational truth and sanctifying truth go hand in hand, beloved. You can't have one without the other. A consideration of salvational truth leads to a consideration of sanctifying truth. See, here we have the secret to a holy life. It says that I may know him. Speaking of Christ. See, no one can live a holy life without utter dedication to a life purpose of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there's been people through the centuries who have lived a single-minded devotion to much lesser goals. You think of Sir Edmund Hillary who devoted himself, gave his life to press up that steep and treacherous slope of Mount Everest. You think of the founder of, of our United States, Christopher Columbus. He set his mind to sail westward. And in spite of the threat of mutiny, in spite of physical peril, he set his face westward to find a new world. So you have to understand that hundreds of other sailors sailed westward before Columbus. But none of them were so persistent. None of them were so long-standing as Columbus. He accomplished his goal. And his crew wasn't always on board. The difference between Columbus and his crew, see, in times of testing, they were ready to give up. But he intended from the very onset to see this voyage through to its destination. You know, that's really a picture here, a good picture of Paul. Paul's goal, his master passion, you might say, was Christ, that I may know him. That's all that mattered to him. Paul had met him, changed his life, and now he wanted to know him even more. See, there's a world of difference between meeting somebody and knowing somebody, right? I think throughout the 25 years of ministry, I probably met hundreds, if not thousands of people. And usually I can't remember one from the other. You can come up to me next week and say, oh, yeah, I can start talking. I'll say, well, what was your name again? Just very bad in that area. Not good at recalling names. My wife, on the other hand, is excellent in that area. She excels far beyond me. Sometimes we'll sit around and we'll talk about the, different, the four different churches we've been in. 
Remember this, this kid, this young kid who was in the youth group? And, and boy, she'll have to talk for quite a while, and then I'll think, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I do remember. Now it's ringing a bell. Some people just remember people right away. Other people struggle. But it's important to understand that here he's talking about knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. To know someone, you have to have a genuine interest, don't you? You know, if you go to Walmart later today and you're at the checkout counter, you may meet the checkout clerk, but you don't know the checkout clerk. And you're not going to know the checkout clerk because you're not interested in knowing the checkout clerk. You just want to get checked out and get out of the place. Sometimes you're standing in line and you wish more people had that kind of an attitude. (laughs) There's some people that stand in line and they start talking about stuff and the line is long and they just keep talking. Well after they're rung up. It's kind of like you push forward in the line, you're kind of pushing them. Okay, you're done. Let me go, you know. To know someone requires a genuine interest. Getting to know a person involves spending quality time with that person. See, in a meaningful and a progressive relationship, each person in the relationship reveals himself. They reveal their dislikes, their likes, their hopes, their fears, their ambitions. Maybe a little bit about their history, their thoughts, their feelings. Building an intimate relationship doesn't happen in a couple days. We know that. It takes a lifetime. It's a lifetime of association, and it's a commitment to that association. Well, Paul here says that he wanted to know Christ. Knowing Christ was his main goal in life. What a wonderful goal it was. Paul wanted to know the one who created the stars. The one who controls the universe. He wanted to know the one who knows all there is to know about space technology and nuclear physics and biochemistry and electronics. He wanted to know the one who's lived down here, who experienced life to the full, who tasted of life's joys and tasted of life's sorrows, has seen life's possibilities and pains. He wanted to know the one who fully understands, who fully loves, who fully cares, who fully encourages and forgives. Paul wanted to know the one who is good, who is patient, kind, graceful, loving, helpful, in John 17, 3, you can turn over there if you want. I just want you to look at this verse with me for a second because this tells us what it means to know Christ. John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, John pens, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know what eternal life is? It's knowing God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely there could be no greater goal for us to pursue this next year in 2010. No greater joy in all eternity than to know Christ in a more intimate and a deeper level. But you know what, beloved? To know him, we have to what? We have to spend time with him. We have to listen to him. We have to respond to him. We have to talk to him. 
And as we do, I promise you, our love for Him will grow. And we'll begin to be like Him. We'll even begin to think like Him. We'll even begin to act like He acted. And possibly even say what He said. And then at last, that day will break. And the shadows will flee away. And the Bible says that one day, one day, beloved, we will see him face to face. And it says that we will be with him and we will be like him for all eternity. Boy, that I may know him. And considering that statement of Paul's consuming ambition, you know what? We tend to emphasize two words. Know in him. I want to encourage you that you emphasize a third word, that I. Make it your personal goal in 2010, that I may know him. May Paul's goal be my goal in 2010. Not only a personal gain, but we see a progressive gain. He says in verses 10, in verse 10 there, in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformed unto his death. See, in life, when you come to know Christ, just as in the Bible when people came to know Christ, when they encountered Christ, there was a change. There was a result. There was something that, that changed because they knew God through Christ. Well, Paul unpacks that for us here in verse 10. When you know Christ, you will know something of Christ's resurrection power. Trust me. The first result of knowing Christ will be knowing his resurrection power. Think with me in the Bible the effect of the resurrection, the resurrection power had on Peter and on Thomas. Remember when, before Jesus went to Gethsemane, Simon Peter... Remember the little interaction they had in his self-confidence, even in his pride, when he assured the Lord that no matter how many other people, Lord, default, no, no, no matter how many other people turn aside, no, no matter how many other people deny you, Lord, I never will. That's what his words were. Very bold statement to make. And that boastful pride suffered a speedy fall when Peter... By simply warming his hands around a fire with a, a simple little maidservant was challenged. And the Bible says that he failed the test. He denied Christ. Not just once, but three times. And the Bible says that he was crushed. And he was overwhelmed by his denial of Christ. And you can only imagine what's going through Peter's mind. And when the Lord looked at him for the last time, he saw Peter's haunting soul. And the Bible says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. It doesn't say where he went. Some commentators say maybe he went to Gethsemane. But something happened in Peter's life as he drew away 
And I think the risen Lord met him, obviously. We don't know what happened. Holy Spirit didn't reveal that through his word. But we see later in a scene by the lakeside, every detail is significant in John 21. It talks about the coals of the fire, the Lord's use of the old name Simon. He, he used to be called Simon. He renamed him Peter. And then he asked him a threefold question, which recalled Peter's failure to the Lord. And Jesus asked, and he said, Simon, son of Jonah's, Do you love me? Remember that? And with that question, the Lord rekindled Peter's fervor. And then Jesus gave him some instructions. Feed my sheep, follow me. And with those commands, the Lord reshaped Peter's future. Peter never forgot that scene by the lakeside. He recalled it. 2 Peter 1.14, John 21.18-19, he, he, he recalled it instantly because that occasion gave him the power, the resurrection power to face martyrdom. The source of Peter's power was Christ's resurrection. He had a confident assurance that Jesus was really who he said he was and that he was truly alive. Stop and think with me about Thomas. Before he saw the risen Christ, he was plunged into depression over the death of his Savior. He was so depressed, the Bible says, that he wasn't even meeting with the other disciples. They were in the upper room, and Thomas wasn't even there when the Lord showed up. I don't know if depression has ever touched your life, but it's probably touched most of our lives. And we've all maybe been at that point in life where, you know what, the morning dawns and the light comes through the the shades and we just want to put the pillow over our head and go back to sleep. We don't want to face another day. We lose our focus. We lose our drive. We lose our confidence that God is at work. Depression is a real thing, beloved. And it touched the life of Thomas as it touched, touches many of our lives at times. And then when the other disciples came to Thomas and they told him, hey, we've seen the risen Christ. It wasn't just one. They were all there and they were telling him. And he said, I'm not even going to believe that. <laughs> but as a side note, he made sure he didn't miss any more of their meetings. <laughs> So the last time they were together, guess who shows up? The Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that the first thing the Lord says to Thomas was, reach here your finger, behold my hands, reach in your hand, thrust it into my side. And then he says this, be not faithless, but believing in John 20, 27. Be not faithless, but believing, he tells Thomas. See, skepticism was immediately transformed into faith in Thomas' life. In a moment, Thomas was at the feet of Jesus. And it says in verse 28 of John 20, he says, My Lord and my God. In one breath, beloved, this man who was depressed and probably filled with fear, in one breath he put Jesus on the throne of his heart and 
He acknowledged that he was on the throne of the universe. My Lord and my God, he cried out. See, the power of Christ's resurrection transformed Thomas. The knowledge that Jesus is alive and that he has conquered the grave once and for all. When you come to know that in a real personal way, it transforms anybody. It makes you a new person in Christ, the Bible says. Christ's death cancels the penalty of sin. And the power of his resurrection cancels the power of sin. And one day, when he comes back to receive us unto himself, we're going to be ushered out of here in glorified bodies, and we're going to be freed from the presence of sin. I don't know about you, but I'd be saying amen right about now. The second result of knowing him is not just Christ's resurrection power, but Christ's rejected position. Look at what it says. Not only the power of his resurrection, it says, but the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. What's that going to do? You know what? When we enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, it's going to help us. It's going to make us willing to face the sneers and the snubs of the world when our faith becomes evident before them. Do you know that Jesus had to face the animosity of his own family? Some of you are experiencing that even now. His own brothers didn't believe in him. And on one occasion, they wanted to restrain him physically. They said that he was beside himself. It's a nice way of saying, lost his marbles. It's crazy. His own brothers. He also had to face the alienation of his followers. So you think everybody always followed Jesus? No, they didn't. Was he popular? Yeah, for a while. But the Bible says in John 6, verse 66, that after his teaching on the bread of life, what we're going to talk about this morning, communion, many of his disciples left him, it says. They just left. And as the pressure began to mount more and more against him, the Bible says more and more turned away. And you know what the Bible also says in Mark 14, 50? That in the end, all forsook him. All forsook him and fled. They ran from him. Like rats run when the light is turned on. He also had to face the accusation of his own foes. They, spl- they slandered his birth. They charged him with being in the league of Satan. We're going to be getting into that next week when we get back into Matthew chapter 12. They twisted his words. They even hired false witnesses to testify against him. Isaiah 53.3 says that he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. That's our Lord and Savior. See, those were his sufferings. And the Bible says that we should be in fellowship with those. That we should share in those. And when that animosity from the family comes. Or the alienation from friends. Or the accusation of people who stand up against us. Come. I pray that we will take heart and those things will only draw us closer to Christ, not further away. 
Christ's resurrection power, his rejected position. And then thirdly, it says here that we will be made conformed unto his death. It speaks of Christ's redemptive passion. Christ's redemptive passion. We will, made, we will be made like him in death. Conformed to his death. See, the heart of the Lord Jesus looks at a lost and dying world and he yearns for that world. He, he has passion for that world to be saved. That's why he came and he died on a cross. And when we get to know him and we learn to lean on his breast as John did, we'll begin to understand something of beating, the beating of his heart for sinful men. We, like Paul, will hopefully find our attitude towards sinners conforming to his. Not a prideful arrogance that looks down our noses at them. You bad people outside the church. But rather with a Christ-like passion. So we can weep as Paul wept. And God told that he would be willing. This is what Paul told God in Romans 9. Turn over there, Romans 9. Verses 1 to 3. I just want you to see this for yourself. Romans 9, verses 1 to 3. With a passion that can only come like Christ, Paul wept and, and told God that he would be willing to go to hell. If that could somehow mean that his own people, the Jewish people, would be converted. That's the passion that Paul had. Look at what it says in Romans 9, verses 1 to 3. I tell you, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continue, continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren and my countrymen according to the flesh. If somehow, God, you could let me go to hell and save them, go for it. That's what he's saying. How unlike... Christ we are. How unlike Paul we are. How little we know Christ. I know many of us here in this room have maybe boys, girls, children, brothers, sisters, family members, close friends who are outside of Christ. They don't know Christ. They're not saved. And granted, occasionally we may mention their names briefly in a prayer for salvation. But where's the passion? Where's the agony? Where's the total sacrifice of pleasure, of the creature comforts, of time and sleep as we fast and pray for their salvation? Where is it? Beloved, this last week I've been looking at that in my own life, and I'll I'll be real honest with you, it's not there. It's not there. Shamefully. Hebrews 5, 7 speaks of strong crying and tears the poured out anguish, the pains of Calvary. Where is that? If we're to be in the fellowship of his sufferings, we need to stop and we need to check our attitudes. Do we have the redemptive passion that Christ has for those who are lost? We have to stop and remember that Christ died for those lost people, that he went to the cross for them, that he was made conformable to death for them. And if we knew him, 
and we're made conformed to his death that we would not rest. We would not count any sacrifice too great. That we would become partakers of the passion until they forsook their sinful ways and came to Christ to know him too. Would it be in 2010 that we would renew our passion for those who have yet to be saved? There's also a perspective gain here that he says in verse 11. He says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. If by any means. In the New Testament, usually this term translated resurrection of the dead is anastasis necron, which refers both to the resurrection to life for those who are saved, but it also refers to the resurrection to judgment for those that are lost. It could mean you're saved or lost. Both are going to be resurrected, one to salvation, one to hell. Here, however, Paul, it's interesting in Philippians, instead of just using that Greek word anastasis, he puts a little preposition in front of it, ek, E-K. And he forms the word eka anastasis, which means basically out from. There's another word that means away from in the Greek, apo, apo. But if you were to describe the difference between those two words, ek and apo, apo would mean you had a circle, draw a circle, and then you have a line just touching the circumference of the circle, and you draw it outwards. That means it's going away from the circle. But the word ek means that that line penetrates deep within the circle, and it comes from within the circle to the outward regions of the circle. So the literal meaning of ex anastasis, or out of the resurrection, that's what it means, out resurrection. It's a resurrection from the dead, but it's distinguished from just the resurrection from the dead. And this is the only place that he uses this word. The only place. What does he mean by out-resurrection? What could he possibly mean? Maybe Paul envisioned a group of people who will have a special position in the resurrection of the dead. Even of those who are going to be saved, they're all going to be resurrected from the dead. But I think Paul envisioned himself attaining to something even beyond that. A special group of those who are being resurrected. A privileged group. Those who are going to be set set apart, who will have attained a special place of status. We use the word, oh, they have arrived. That Greek word translated attain there is just that. It's used in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. It says of Paul... Luke writes, then came he to Derby and Lystra. That word came is the same word he attained. He, he arrived at Derby and Lystra. So when Paul wrote these words to the Philippians, he was not sure yet that he had arrived at the out-resurrection. He was for sure going to be part of the resurrection, but he even had a goal beyond that. Later in 2 Timothy 4.7, it seems that he was sure that he attained that coveted position. For he writes in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I 
I have fought the good fight. I have what? Finished the race. I have what? Kept the faith. So Philippians, he's still running. He's still attaining. He's he's still trying to, to reach that point. But at the end of his life, he says, no, I've I've done the best I can do. And with Christ's grace and with Christ's help, I did it. So there's a way that we can know Christ in a deeper way. Some people say, well, if you're saved, you're saved, right? There's no, no, I think we can know Christ even more. You may be saved from hell. You may be in heaven one day. But the Bible clearly says that we can work on our sanctification here on earth, that we can become more and more like him each and every day. And that's what Paul's desire was. You never arrive here while you're here on earth. Do you understand that? Some of you who are older, who've known the Lord for years, probably even older than I am, you've known the Lord that many years, 50 years. You've been walking with Christ all those years. Don't you ever sit there and think, oh, okay, well, I've done it all. I've, I've, I've arrived. I can't learn anything else. There's nothing else that God can change in my life because I'm 80 years old and, and I've been a Christian all my life for most of my life and, and you know, I, I, God can't do anything new in my life. Don't you ever believe that lie. Every day that we wake up, that we take that first breath of fresh air in the morning, hopefully God is doing something fresh and new in your work, in your life. If he's not, there's something wrong. And that was Paul's attitude. Well, we've looked at, at his past glory, his present gains, and just quickly look at his goals. He assesses his situation in verse 12. And he does so realistically. Not as though I've already attained, either were already perfected. Stop and think with me, just for a second, of Paul's career up to this point. Think of Paul's career up to this point. Within a few weeks of being converted to Christ, he had made such an impact on Damascus that he stirred up up the opposition that he was forced to leave the city. He went to Arabia, where he thought through the Old Testament revelation in light of the cross of Christ, and he formulated the essence of the New Testament doctrine, and he actually coined many of the words and expressions that we even use today in Christian theology. And while waiting for God to work in his life and show him what he wanted him to do, he evangelized Arabia, Tarsus, and Cilicia. Then he moved over to Syrian Antioch at the urging of Barnabas, And the apostle made a great impact on that wicked city. Is he done yet? Not even. Paul evangelized the island of Cyprus. He founded a string of churches in Galatia at Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and then later in northern Galatia. He championed the cause of Christian liberty, and he helped the elders of the Jerusalem church understand that Gentiles didn't have to become a Jew in order to become Christians. It's a monumental achievement that freed the early church of all the shackles of Judaistic legalism. He pioneered the work in Europe and he planted thriving churches in Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, Corinth. He made that memorable speech on Mars Hill before all the intellectuals of the world as they gathered there. The Bible says that he evangelized Ephesus and left behind a church 
that would just churn out other planted churches in Western Asia Minor. And after traveling and preaching and teaching and exhorting, Paul arrived at Rome as a prisoner. And even there, while he lived in constant peril of death, the Bible says that he was continually winning uh, converts in the ranks of the imperial guard and extending the cause of Christ even into Caesar's household, in Caesar's palace. In his years, Paul influenced many scores of men to follow his example and to follow Christ, who gave themselves to evangelizing, pastoring, teaching, Timothy, Titus, Luke, Silas, Aristarchus, Gaius, Tychicus, Trophimus. The apostle himself, the Bible says, had performed miracles, healing the lame, casting out demons, banishing fever, curing the sick, even raising the dead. He also suffered great hardships, but he did so with joy in his heart, with a song on his lips. The Bible says that he had been beaten, he had been scourged, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was stoned, he was mobbed, he was castigated, and he was even mocked. And yet through all that, at the end of all that, Paul writes these words, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. In other words, Christ isn't done with me yet. Can you believe that? It took me five minutes to quickly tell you what Paul did. Most of us, if we went through that, we would think that we had arrived. Not Paul. He also assessed his situation resolutely. It says in verse 12, I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. And he borrows here the language in this, this chapter of an athlete. Paul's saying, you know what, I'm pressing on. I am going to press on and I want to seize that for which I have been seized hold of Christ. That word there translated follow after, or press on. It's the same word trans, translated in Philippians 3, 6 when he talks about persecuting. Same word. He had the same passion as a religious Jew in persecuting the church. Now he's a converted Jew, he's a Christian, and he has that same passion in taking Christ to the uttermost parts of the world. That same commitment drove Paul to stamp out Christianity. Now it has him planting it everywhere. But look at what he says in verse 13. He says, I count not myself to have apprehended. He stops. And he wrote this letter, and letter after letter, he speaks of spiritual truth. And the most exalted views of Christ are from the pen of Paul. He's given us the dynamics of Christian living and Christian growth. And yet the apostle was saying, I don't think that I have grasped yet all there is to grasp. I haven't arrived yet. We come to the end here, and it speaks of a fresh start. He says, this one thing I do, 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. He stops and he assesses everything that he's done. And he says, you know what? That's not good enough. I'm going to start over. That's his plan. He's saying the past was the past. Yeah, God used that graciously and wondrously and people's lives were touched. That's great. Thank God for that. But you know what? That's in the past. See, some of us in our Christian lives, we live in the past. We go back to the day we came to Christ and we think of all the excitement and all the joy and all the sin that was stripped away from our lives. Well, we went to this conference. We went there. We went to this youth camp. Oh, that was so great. God spoke to my heart. We're living in the past. Even as a church, we can live in the past, beloved. Oh, what a wonderful prophecy conference we had last fall. Oh, but it wasn't that great. It's the past. Praise God for it, but it's the past. Personally, I'm not interested in the past. I'm interested in what God's going to do in 2010. Not only in this church, but in my life, in your life, in our community. That's what Paul did. Paul had touched two continents for Christ, but he probably scratched his head and said, what about Africa? What about the continents that haven't even been discovered yet? There's got to be people there. Paul had reached Rome, and now he wanted to go to Spain. What about the regions where Rome's proud eagles never even touched? Who was going to take the gospel to the islands of Britain or to the Scots? Weren't all these places part of the Great Commission? To Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles? See, the task in Paul's mind was quite unfinished. In Paul's mind, it had barely even begun. Paul decided purposely that there was only one thing to do and begin as though nothing at all had been done. His new plan was to put the past resolutely behind him and set his sights on new targets ahead. And see, in stating his objectives, here's what he said. This one thing I do. Underline that in your Bible. This one thing I do. D.L. Moody, who was probably as busy a man as Paul when it comes to the work of Christ, he said this on occasion. He said, it's better to say, this one thing I do, than to say, these 40 things I dabble with. That's a good point. I think Paul would agree with that. See, Paul concentrated all his energy on the one goal that he had set for himself, that he would know Christ in a more intimate way. Nothing could distract him. Why did he do that? It speaks of the prize. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. See, throughout his entire life, throughout his entire ministry, and throughout this book, we have the language of an athlete. And we see Paul as a man running a race. And his head is thrust forward. His expression is set fiercely on the determined goal, the finish line. Every nerve in his body is tense. His breath is gasping for air. 
And the whole being is stretched to the utmost to finish well. Every last ounce of energy, every last bit of willpower, he's putting, just throwing it out there. He's spending it to win the prize. What's the prize? It says the high calling of God. Paul wanted to be way out in front as a winner. He wasn't satisfied just to go along with the pack. He wanted to be in the out-resurrection. He wanted to be one of those who was called out from the rank and file and those ascending on high. He wanted that prize with every fiber of his being and he knew the only way to get that was through Christ. That led to his uncompromising dedication, the motivation that pushed Paul to be committed to him until the end. See, it was the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, that led and directed him. It wasn't a map that he held in his hands as he tried to evangelize the the worlds in which he came in contact with. It was the Master. I ask you this morning, is the Master's hand evident in your life? Are you embracing all that this new year holds for us? Are you trying with all your being to pursue Christ, to know Him? Are you asking God to do a fresh work in your life? Unsatisfied with what was done in 2009. But looking ahead, what is God going to do in my life? That's why you got that envelope. That's why you got that card. Write down three spiritual goals that you have for 2010. And as you write it down and as you put it in the envelope and you address it to yourself, later on in the year, you'll find this in your mailbox one day. And you're going to be confronted with the commitment that you made to God on January 3rd, 2010. And how many months have passed? And have you even thought about these commitments? Have you seen God work in your life in a new way? Or is it just business as usual? I pray you'll participate in this. And you don't have to do it today. You can turn these in through the month of January. I pray that you would do it prayerfully. But let's start off on the right foot. Let's have a new beginning. Let's, let's take our mulligan and start fresh as an individual, as a church, and ask God to do a fresh work in and through us. The Lord knows our area needs a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church and I pray that you'll get excited about what God's going to do in 2010 Father we pray this morning that as we seek to prepare our hearts for communion Lord as we looked into the life of the Apostle Paul the last couple weeks and we realized that even though he's a very religious person he had to put all that aside even though he was part of the right race These are your chosen people. He had to put that aside. The only thing that he understood was the righteousness which Christ gave him. And that was in that righteousness that he could be found pure, that he could be found holy. 
Lord, we ask as this new year begins that if there's any here today who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, have yet to cry out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I pray, Lord, that this would be the day, even this would be the moment, this would be the year that you would draw them unto yourself, that you would reveal to them the only way that you can through your word, through your spirit, through us as individuals, that you would reveal to them that they need Christ. Even in their unbelief, I pray that you would help their unbelief, that they would take that to you, and you would answer their prayer, that you would save them. We pray for the many family members and friends and even neighbors that are represented here today. I pray that we would start afresh in our passion for the lost. That we would do everything we can to help them to understand the gospel, not just through our words, but through our lives as well. And Father, we pray for us as believers that as we leave this place today and walk out into a lost and dying world, that we would recognize that it's our responsibility, that you left us here for a purpose. We're not here to be spectators. That's not why you left us here. You left us here to be participants in the wonderful task of taking a glorious, gracious, forgiving, hope-filled message, message to a lost and dying world and seeing you transform hearts one heart at a time. We pray at the end of 2010 that we can look around and see many who have come to Christ, many who have been saved this past year. We just ask, Lord, that you would do that work in and through us. Prepare us as we come before this communion time that you would uh, reveal to us anything that's in our hearts that shouldn't be there, that we could come to you as believers and confess that, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your, Your word claims that. We thank you that we have that in Christ. And so, Father, we just pray that you would minister your grace to us now. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.